Welcome to the Axis Effect podcast, where you'll hear the most compelling, provocative, and real conversations with industry leaders and innovators in tech, sports, and entertainment with our host and CEO of well-known PR firm, Axis Entertainment, Sarah Miller. This is Sarah Miller, Marjorie here with the Axis Effect, and we're here with Drew Spaventa, founder and CEO of the Spaventa Group. How's it going, Drew? It's going as as I said, minus this little slight cold that I have that you're going to see me from time to time blowing my schnauz <laughs> over here. Everything's everything's good, but I got my Kleenex, I got my sanitizer, I got my water, and it's it's actually snowing out here in New York. So I mean, I'm alive. I'm a little envious of the snow, but not the cold. But it's okay. We'll let that go. <laughs> It's so funny. It's like not funny, funny, not funny. Like we've been on the phone chatting with so many of our tech clients and so many people on the closing right. Silicon Valley Bank. And so I do feel for a lot of the investment companies out there. But I I, I want to jump in to what's going on, on the banking side the past few days. But I want to really talk first about the Spaventa Group, because we're all about leadership and you've done a tremendous job, you know, building your investment company. You know, you're on the Forbes Finance Council. So I really want to talk about what is it that you guys are doing and how are you leading the industry right now with your firm? And then we'll pivot into where we're going from here. So give us a little bit of feedback of what you guys are doing out there. And how long have you owned TSG for? Well, we've been in operation for close to three years now. Prior to that, I had another exclusively a VC firm with a business partner of mine, or should I say ex-business partner of mine that was launched in 2018. So I've had my own companies for at least, you know, call it five years. Prior to that, I've held various roles in the financial sphere, stockbroker, aka registered rep, fund manager, managing director of another investment firm. And what we do now is my whole vision for this firm was really to create the investment firm of tomorrow. You know, on the financial planning side of things, I see a lot of complacency. And a lot of people wanting to get access to what we call alternative investments. I'm sure you've heard that, you know, a lot of people are saying the 60-40 portfolio is dead. And that's really our bread and butter. So what I wanted to do was create uh, an investment firm where we have a fund management division where we focus exclusively on alternative assets. Our main asset class within the alternative asset ecosystem is venture capital. We are going to start going into real estate uh, very soon. But we want to be able to accommodate all types of accredited investors with their asset-specific taste on our fund management side. And then we also have two subsidiaries in addition to that fund management division. The first subsidiary is TSG Alpha Partners. That's a registered investment advisor. Through that subsidiary, we do exclusively wealth management and financial planning. And then we also have TSG Insurance Services, where you do your cookie-cutter you know, insurance products and annuities. So really, our... our main business is, listen, the, an investment firm that has legs in the alternative asset sphere. And that's really where we are. So what's TSG Alpha Partners? That is a wealth management firm. That's what so that's, that's, a, yep, that's a registered investment advisor, a subsidiary of the Spaventa Group. Because of our industry, there's a lot of compliance and everything like that. So I make sure to have everything segmented and all that good stuff. You know, One LLC or one subsidiary has no effect on the other. So TSG Alpha Partners is our wealth management financial planning firm. I'm the chairman on there. I have a CEO that runs it, Salvatore Cavruso, who's a certified financial planner, a big wig in the industry. He's owned several broker dealers, sold them, made a lot of money. I convinced him to come over onto this side of the fence. So he's running exclusively our more conservative strategies within TSG Alpha. And it's my job to lead the vision for the the overall company that is the Spaventa Group. I love it because I, when I graduated college years ago, I was at John Hancock Financial when I was living in La Jolla. And so I ended up doing, got my licenses, did my Blue Sky Series 7, 6, insurance, full service, insurance, wealth management. Then I moved over to the New England, but then I ended up being like, why am I in a financial planning situation in my 20s on commissions, which sucked. So I ended up using all my marketing PR skills. So I ended up doing all the marketing PR for the... um general manager for this companies when we did the merge with MetLife and then completely bailed out of the financial industry, stuck strictly to PR and marketing ever since then. So I do get the whole full service insurance and portfolios and stuff. And I just feel like that was so long ago, but just we've evolved so much 
over time when, when it comes to your financial plan and securities. And I do love that you guys do stretch and cover upcoming trends and technologies. And so your portfolios are diversified. I think what like what's crazy right now is I really want your feedback on this. How are you guys leading through this whole crypto and Bitcoin phenomena that came up? I know crypto crashed. I know we've all lost money, but like as a financial leader, how are you guys weeding through that whole like wave of hot commodity of crypto, crypto tank, Bitcoin's on the rise and it's affecting fiat. I mean, where do you guys stand with all this? And like, what are you telling your clients that are kind of trying to dip into that area? Yeah, I mean, there's so many unknowns when it comes to cryptocurrencies, especially with regulation. And obviously, it's been a hot topic over the last six months. If you look at the collapse of FTX, if you look at the stock price of Coinbase, everybody's looking at Coinbase as the the biggest comp for a lot of these private companies. Full disclosure, we actually have invested in a crypto exchange that's currently a portfolio company of ours. And then, of course, the coup de grace lately has been Silvergate. You know, Silvergate was exclusively a crypto-friendly bank, and they just went under. What was it? You know, barely a week ago. Yeah. So, and on top of that, the regulation too. You know, everybody, it's it's still a new technology. I mean, Bitcoin was created in two thousand nine, but it's really the talk of the town for the last, I'd say, at least maybe three four years, if that. So, there's still a lot of unknowns. What I what I like to tell clients is. With so many different assets, with you to be able to allocate your assets towards other these different investments, you know, if you don't really understand something, there's no reason to actually have to go in. Now, obviously, I've dealt with so many clients, some really sophisticated, some not so sophisticated, some really well off, some average, I guess, by you know American standards. But don't give in to the fear of loss. And I know it's so cliche, but you have to have a disciplined approach to investing, no matter what the asset class is. You can't get emotions into the way. And when you see, you know, all these buzzwords, NFT and crypto and everything like that, Bitcoin's going up and Ethereum's going up. What about Dogecoin? Elon Musk and all these guys are talking about Dogecoin. Let's get into Dogecoin. It's as if, hey, listen, know what you're getting in. And it's okay to play. If you don't even know what you're getting in and you want to play, just make sure that you're not putting an extraordinary amount of your assets into something. You got a million dollars, five million dollars, whatever it is. All right, put less than 1% of it into some sort of risky endeavor, right? So. I think that's where we are. I'm a proponent of crypto. There's still certain things that I don't understand about it. Uh, virtual real estate, I'm not really hot on. I don't know what the point is. NFTs, it's okay, man. You know what I mean? I, and here's what I'll say about NFTs. I think NFTs were, if I'm not mistaken, created because there are digital artists that want to monetize their work. The disadvantage that they have compared to a traditional artist is traditional artist has a canvas and, and paint or stencils or whatever they're using. They create a, a beautiful piece of art, then they could go sell it or make copies of it and sell the inauthentic pieces. So how did, does a does a digital art? Well, the, 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 the NFTs is a different market because I was it was about two years ago, a year, year and a half ago, we had a client created their own crypto exchange, being in the metaverse. It was just crazy. I mean, these guys didn't know what they were doing. It was like a big land grab, and I was always pretty clear. It's just a matter of time. You cannot be trading and moving that much money around without the feds knowing. So, you know, people are now saying, well, all of our stuff is offshore. We want to pay our retainers in in currency because we don't want to get busted because they're piling and minting so much overseas and they know they're going to have to pay the price eventually. So they kept trying, they just worked really hard to keep it hidden. So it's, but I know it's like, you can't do that. Eventually the feds are going to catch up. They're going to want their cut. There's two, I mean, the Bitcoin was trading in billions. Like it was up to like, 60,000 a coin and people were literally raking in five, six coins at a time. There was eventually you're going to have to pay the price. And so I think a lot of that market leveled out because then when um, I know the feds came in, SEC started putting down new laws. We have the whole currency task force for the FBI. IRS had like two over 2000 or way more than that people going after people. I just feel like there was so much scam and we see it all playing out in front of us. Kardashian tried to pay a million dollars to SEC for using social. I mean, it's just such a, it's like the wild, wild west with the coins that when NFTs came out, use your ETH to buy the NFTs. And people were just, I think a lot of it was, we're off COVID, we're getting out of the pandemic, we were on lockdown. We are normally- I, I agree. But we're trying to catch up with technology. I mean, we're a tech firm, so- We've been tracking it, but the problem is while we were down through pandemics, I know 
uh, when I was in LA, the East and West Coast took it the worst. The technology for the first time in history caught up and got ahead of us. When we came out, we scrambled. And the NFTs, for me, I think it's a total joke. I mean, it's a JPEG. It, all it is is a JPEG. You can screenshot it. I can screenshot you and your art behind you. Put it everywhere. The problem is NFTs are meant to be a utility. So if you look at NFL, you look at Gucci Chanel, LVMH, they're using it because they have products, digital and virtual currency. On the NFT side with um, at mobile, if I know your favorite team, your favorite player, which teams you're going to, which games you go to, I could use your NFT to know exactly what you're buying, who your favorite players are, merch, tickets, there's so much value to have that NFT, but that data they're collecting on you, to me, is so invaluable. You as a NFT holder based on the utility in the back end is worth a lot of money. Companies using NFTs to that level, which is only two or three on the planet, are doing it the right way. Whether they use ETH then or they're flipping over to fiat now is irrelevant. 99% of NFTs out in the market saw a huge land grab, quick churn and burn, off pandemic, make millions, but the NFTs aren't worth anything. It's just an empty JPEG because utility on that back end, unless you have the budget, the teams like NFL dev department, the bigger companies who have tons behind it and departments building it out, that NFT isn't worth shit. It's just, it is what it is. And that's where the market started crashing and then crypto crashed with it. Bitcoin stayed stable, but this is like this whole like velocity that was all meshed together that was unclear into the real estate, into the metaverse. I want to buy a penthouse, a virtual one, use my avatars, use my crypto. It is so live much- next to Snoop Dogg. Live next to Snoop Dogg. <laughs> I'm going to live next to Snoop Dogg and Martha Stewart. But the thing is, though, if you break it down into layers, break away the crypto, break away the NFTs, the data, there's a lot of the technology built behind all this that makes sense. And all it is is based on multi-gaming platforms. Why all the gaming and esports guys are driving that industry. It's just a whole new way to play. What I think the problem is it got messy. It's crashed. And like you said, you don't get emotionally attached. People lost money, burnt out, move on. Very few companies will build the layer of what's important to become big. But then it's weird because all this is happening. And then SVB went down and a lot of the VC money and startups into this was in the bank. So I don't know if this whole cyclical thing is just recorrecting the market, which is what I think. But I think people have to stand back and look at this a little pragmatically and smarter than just hey, I'm going to go push cryptos. I want to get into the crypto market. You got to look at the market ebbs and flows. And right now, it is not a good place to invest. So, I mean, just support you. Yeah, I would say go to a financial planner, go to a smart investor. But right now, we're now dealing with the SVP and all the tech in the whole, I think the entire tech industry. I don't think it's going to tank. I just think it's going to be messy to clean up why these two banks that hold the tech industry's funds kind of crashed in the past 48 hours. Yeah, and I think over the last three years have been a remarkable occurrence that they're going to have a lot of thought experiments, you know, going 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now. You know, the period, the time period between January 2020 to, to even now. I mean, look what's happened. You know, you, we've had bubbles in crypto, you know, talk about the NFTs, the market in general. Why? Because the government pumps out all this money. You had a lot of people sitting at home yeah, there are people that needed those funds. There's a lot of people that didn't. And what do they do with those funds? Because they were bored. They start trading. And with everybody trading, because I think we got to a point where like about 25 to 30% of daily volume was by retail traders. That's, that's a crazy amount. I believe, I don't know what the time frame was, but I, I believe that was sometime in 2020, if I'm not mistaken. So if you have that type of capital being deployed, what's going to happen to all these the, the valuation of all these companies, what's going to happen to the valuation of crypto, what's going to happen in MPs, everything's good. Now, all of a sudden, you have these retail investors that ha- don't have a lot of experience investing, and they think that's really easy, right? Even six months ago, I think now, the amount of retail investors playing the game or actually allocating capital in the stock market has drastically fallen off, right? So it's really a, a mind-boggling way, or should I say a unique way to look at human nature and how people uh, react. As far as Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and Silvergate, obviously, it's going to take some time to peel back what exactly transpired and what exactly led to this. 
obviously from a top level view, we could look at Silicon Valley Bank loaning out most of that money to VC firms, which in turn gave that money to startups, which in turn deposited that money into Silicon Valley Bank. All of a sudden, over a quarter, period of a year, year and a half, their assets double or go up anywhere between 100, 150%. Then what do they do with those assets? They need to make a return. They go in and they buy a fixed income. And then what happens? The Fed aggressively raises the rates. All of a sudden, the price of those bonds go down. Now they're sitting on unrealized losses, right? And not to mention that, which... The, the one thing that I think is more of a moot point is the fact that most of their deposits were uninsured. And the reason for that, just with Signature Bank, is because most of them are medium-sized businesses that are going to have way over a quarter million dollars. And even the FDIC, I mean, where it's outdated. You know, most of these businesses, I think Roku had $500 million with SVB. If I'm not mistaken, Coinbase just came out. They had a quarter billion dollars with Signature Bank. I was a client of Signature Bank. You know what I mean? So it's, and, and another thing with Signature Bank, I mean, 20% of their, their assets were allocated to loans towards crypto friendly businesses. I think about 16 billion, even though they peeled it back. So we still don't even know why Signature Bank got closed. Was it more precautionary? I think it was more precautionary, which is a hell of a thing to do to a company just for precaution. But, you know, the, the company itself was overexposed. I don't think it's going to be a systemic thing. I don't think a lot of other banks are, there's going to be a huge, huge issue, but. You know, again, every, hate to say it, but every, you know, what, 10, 15, 20 years, we have a, a little bit of a reset when it comes to banking. And, you know, the second and third largest bank failures in a matter of a few days is is a hell of a thing to say. You know, it seems like the government comes in and, as you say, everything's kind of cyclical and they raise interest rates. And then you oh. see almost a repeat of what happened Excuse in 2008. Me. So if you were, you know, the head of the Fed, how would you actually resolve this or try to fix it, given your experience? That's the thing. I'm not the Fed. I don't see what they do. I don't have the experience that Jerome Powell is has. Everybody could criticize, but until you walk that person's shoes, as far as I'm concerned, shut your mouth. You know what I mean? What I can say is I think they should have been a little bit more aggressive with the, the rate hikes right after uh, 2020. All right, let's finish 2020. We had a, a black swan event, something that happened for the first time in a century. How about we gradually start increasing the rates? But the one thing that, in my opinion, they did wrong. But again, I'm not Jerome Powell. I'm not the Fed. You know, where nobody. You know, even even the big time hedge fund managers that have been doing this for thirty to forty years that go on CNBC or Bloomberg are going to have the type of knowledge that the Fed has. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. it, it's easy to sit there and critique. But again, the one thing that I would say is, along with a lot of other people, is I think they should have been a little bit more aggressive. You know, in 2021. It should have been a little bit more gradual instead of the shock that we have now. But we'll, we'll see how it pans out. I think the, the next step is instead of increasing the rates next meeting, maybe let's just hold off on it. Let's blow over. If you look at employment, I mean, tech companies are slashing, right? All these tech companies are slashing. I wrote an article uh, that was published on Forbes on how I think the, the Twitter buyout was a positive thing and Elon Musk's strategy is a positive thing for high growth companies. But we just don't know. Well, we'll see. As I said, I think they should hold off on the next rate hike for the next meeting, and then we'll see where we are. I mean, we just added another, what, 330,000 jobs, right? It's really the tech companies that overspent and saw their valuations balloon and wanted to play catch up that they're the ones that are all slashing. I mean, we have a lot of portfolio companies that slash, you know, 10, 15, 20% of our workforce. But I think it's also, we went through this, I think in 2008 or 2000, we've gone through this cycle two or three times. When I started my um, company years ago, I was up in San Francisco and the tech industry just busted open. You know, the $20,000, $30,000 launch parties, the $20, $30 million money that was just flowing by just smalling out of VC with a good idea, that blew up. We got back in, we hunkered down, corrected in the real estate market, got back up, pandemic hit. This whole PPP thing has just been a mess because, and I agree with you, so many companies who did that. Hey, I answered five questions. I got 189 million, but that was a two month burn rate for employees only for payroll. So, you know, most of these companies weren't burning $189 million in payroll alone. And so that, so now they're saying the feds are going to audit that. But then I think it's just kind of this perfect storm velocity that led into the crypto, the NFT led into everything else. But, and I do think the tech industry is correcting itself, but I just saw an article in the New York Times that employment rate for February 
was up. It wasn't as bad as people thought. It was actually pretty good. So because the sector of tech, and I agree with you, it's just recorrect and they overinflated. They thought, hey, out of the pandemic, let's put all the money we saved being home, back in, blow it up, go big, go home. That was poor leadership and planning on that side, which really, I mean, because if you're a really good leader, you know what you're doing. You're not going to overinflate get super bloated, then have to lay off on that level. That was just bad leadership of those companies. But well, my issue is with SVB, because I know a lot of them are hurting. They're just going to blame the banks for their lack of leadership, which I'll have a whole commentary on. But I find interesting is that former CFO for Shearson Lehman, when that whole scandal hit, was banned from taking an officer role in any banking. I mean, that was it. He was banned after that. How is he now the CFO of SVB? Because I'm looking at all these billions of dollars being lost. Where did it go? I'm going to the CFO. It's the same guy that was banned from banking as an officer of any bank after Lehman. And he's now the one at SVB running all of this. So I'm now starting to look at where is the leadership in banking right now? If you look at how all this, I don't know what went on this morning with the other bank but I just know SVB had a CFO that was banned legally from stepping into a bank. Well, you know, that's the funny thing. You know, as I continue to get older and become wiser, become more experienced, I think most organizations, whether they're for-profit, non-profit, governments, whatever, they have subpar leadership. Everybody, is, you know, acts strong and everything like that when the times are good. But once, you know, shit hits the fan... That's when you really see what people are made of. And I, I don't think there's really a, good, a lot of good leadership out there. I don't think we have good leadership. You know the banking better than I do, obviously. But from the tech and, inter- I mean, Marjorie could probably talk more on the entertainment side. But from the tech side, entertainment, no, I have literally seen, I mean, we've had, we're like in season nine now with this podcast. And so we're all on leadership. And like I did a social the other day with, this guest I had, she's a female vineyard owner, created her company in a champagne bar, not a boardroom. She is probably, there's only two or three people I've seen in our past few seasons that honestly struck a chord where, yeah, that's good leadership. That is how you fight through, how you get through and how you do it. But I agree with you. I'm not seeing a lot of good leadership. And I think through the pandemic, like I had press calling me, hey, who, who's winning the awards? Who's on the podcast? We're not seeing leadership in the news. Who's fighting through this? You're an agency. What are you seeing? I'm like, not as much as I thought I'd see. I, think yeah, the- I almost think everybody was traumatized by COVID and the good leaders really could lead. But as you said, as you both said, it's a leaders defined during the hard times. It's like when this all, you know, comes together and, you know, Silicon Valley's back, you're going to see who the really good leaders were, the people who were able to keep our companies, able to keep their startups and keep growing. And one of the things I kind of wanted to ask you about TSG, you do a lot of different types of investments like cybersecurity defense, but you also do psychedelics. So to take this off on a little <laughs> tangent, oh yes, um, that, what made you enter that market? I think it's well, just so fascinating. We haven't entered it yet. We have a few blog posts in there. I'm, I'm actually, there's Trailblazers, I think it is next next month in April. It's a psychedelic conference in the city. I will be attending because I'm very interested in the space. We have, I think, three public companies. One was backed by Peter Thiel, Atari Life Sciences, I think is the name of. I think they're using psilocybin, which you know, magic mushrooms to treat people. But I'm, I'm very interested in psychedelics. I, I think there's definitely a, a way there to help people with uh, mental illness, and that's that's a crazy thing too because I, I think people like I know I'm batshit crazy, right? In a good way. But there's some things that go on there that I'm just kind of questioning myself sometimes. Like, what the hell's going on, right? That being said, we also have, to a certain extent, part of me thinks that, all right, if you're going through something mental, get over it because where that's Western world problems. You want to see real problems, go into a third world country where their big problem is, I hope my siblings don't die today. I hope I could feed my family today, right? But here in the what what's our biggest problem there? You know, uh, now here in, in America, oh, I can't buy gourmet food. I can only get the cheap food, but I'm eating, right? I wish I could go to this concert, but I can't afford the tickets, but I'm still alive. But on another side of that, mental illness is a thing. There are people that suffer for whatever reason from anxiety, from anger issues. Uh, I'm very transparent with my organization. And I think I've said this a few times. I'm going to be 37 in a few months. 
because of my background, single parent, all that good stuff, I, I grew up with the wrong mindset and the wrong attitude. I spent most of my you know first 15 years in life victimizing myself. And then the next 15 years of my life, just the angriest person in the world. And then I turned 30 and all of a sudden I changed my attitude and my mindset and just life started changing. You know what I mean? But again, there, there are people and I still have my moments of anger for whatever reason. There, there are times that I'm just walking around and I'm just angry, an angry, bald white guy with tattoos, right? I'm just angry and I have to check myself. So I think, I think psychedelics, it's not a matter of if, but when that they could actually use for a positive to actually assist people. And I'm not going to lie. I've, I've taken psych- psychedelics in my 20s. I could speak to that because at least I've experienced that too. And I can tell you right now, it, it is an eye-opening thing. It really is. Now, to the extent of people taking it, that's legalization of cannabis. I'm a, a marijuana smoker, right? I have a medical card. You know, in my 20s, I would smoke to, you know, chill out and do nothing all night. Now I don't do that. Obviously, I have a large responsibility. but I have a vaporizer. I have a certain amount. I know what strains I'm getting. I know what the THC content is. I know how much to smoke to not knock me off on my ass and just kind of woosaw me out at night, but I'm still functional. And that's an important thing. And I compare it to, to alcohol. You know how much you're having. You know what the alcohol content is. And it's up to you not to abuse it. And I think anybody that's anti-psychedelics or anti-cannabis doesn't really fully understand it because anybody who says that, I'm just going to point to alcohol. I'm just going to point to alcohol. Well, if cannabis, you don't want to see legalized, why alcohol? Why is alcohol? You know what I mean? The, the one thing I don't like, because I live on Long Island, sometimes on Long Island, sometimes you go to the city, you smell it everywhere. That I don't like. That I don't like. Treat it and regulate it like you would alcohol. You're not allowed to walk and just walk down the street with a bottle of JMO or Captain Morgan or Grey Goose, and I'm just rattling off alcohol at brands, just so I'm not promoting anybody, whoever wants to pay me, I guess. <laughs> so any one of those, right? But just like you can't walk down the street with an open bottle of vodka or rum or whatever it is, you should be able to walk down the street with a blunt or anything like that. Keep it at home, you know, because there is secondhand smoke. There are children around. But in the grand scheme of things, what you want to do behind closed doors is entirely up to you. The one issue I do have is because if I am pro-cannabis, I am pro-psychedelics, and you should be able to do what you want because I have very libertarian views on things. Then the next question somebody might ask me, then why can't we legalize heroin? Then why can't we legalize cocaine? Why can't we legalize crack? What about crystal meth? It's not the easiest thing to answer because if I'm saying that you should be able to do what you want, why can you smoke weed? Why can you drink alcohol? But why can't you sniff some coke or smoke some crack? Right. So it's again, it's a thought experiment. And I think it's okay to not have the answers, but as long as you're willing to sit, be, sit across the table and actually have an open dialogue, which unfortunately not a lot of us could do nowadays, I think that's the most important thing. But I do think, I mean, I do think there was a fine line there because you, like you said, you're microdosing on cannabis. I mean, I get everybody has it for anxiety. They can't sleep or whatever. You know, alcohol is alcohol. You need a drink just to have a bad day. But I think we start paving that that question of why not heroin? Why not cocaine? Why not all this other shit? Because that's just now becoming, it's just more of a dangerous area where you can't really self, you can't self-medicate on that to where you're not damaging and killing yourself or others. If you look at where the numbers are in the drug industry, it's not alcohol and cannabis are high, but they're legalized because I think it's more it's not as damaging. They can still monitor it. You have to be 21 or 18 or 20 to buy alcohol. You know, pot, cannabis is cannabis. I think we start bringing in, introducing the harder drugs. Fentanyl. Oh, yeah. Let, let's just to be clear, I'm not saying that heroin and everything should be. Oh, no, no, I know. But I just think I'm I just, think, I, I just want to. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like I don't have to say that, but just. No, in case, but I feel like I feel I'm like, not saying that somebody could take some crystal no, meth but, and but smoke I agree up with and you. smoke up, I man. Have a good you. one. I'm not, think, I'm not saying that. No, I know, but I agree with you that I think those questions are going to start coming into the market soon because cannabis is now being approved in a lot more states. And I do think, where do you start and where do you stop? I mean, this is not a medical drug podcast, but I do agree with you. There's So I do see why you're investing in cannabis. I do see where that's going. I know people who have invested, have cannabis companies and the farms, but I, they have the same questions. I had a client once who was huge in cannabis in LA. He, you know, he did it for good, used the money for a bottle watering company for every bottle bought, 
five cents goes to, you know, countries in need of water. But it was always a question of where does that start and stop? So it is a valid question if you're investing in that space. That's all I was trying to say. But no, nobody here agrees with that. Anybody should be doing anything that's harmful to them. But but I think it's also scientists, like scientific, like if you look at psychedelics, they say that it really helps with PTSD. So if you have post-traumatic stress disorder in the military, they're doing research on this. They're proving that this is helping people like turn around their lives after one or two doses. And that's a huge, huge scientific breakthrough. So, and you know, in the same with cannabis, they're showing it helps with glaucoma, it helps with, you know, anxiety. So I think it may be a well, heroin's super addictive, so I'd never say that. But if there was scientific backing for certain drugs, I think, you know, and they really vet them, then maybe it's something that should be looked at more. And everybody also forgets that science does change. Mm-hmm. Well, look at the pharmaceutical. I mean, look at pharmas, big pharmas, the investment stocks. I mean, people are investing in big pharma. They want cures. They need to pay somebody. They need to know that they're working on stuff that's going to save lives. So I just think the whole circle of that whole pharma industry is such a political conversation. We probably don't want to get into right now. It would be a good one, Drew. But let me have people. I'm all about it. My last one was race relations. And then we got into other things. Um, You know, the, the issue with having politically controversial conversations is you might have like, for instance, I might have a few investors that loved me. And all of a sudden I say, I'm pro marijuana. And they're sitting there thinking to themselves, wait, you're pro marijuana. You know what? Screw this guy. So it comes down to human nature where you do have to be open, understand the reasons why. That's why I think that if you do have an open dialogue, I'm all about it. I I don't care. I will have an open dialogue about any subject out there, but it has to be common collective. And here are my thoughts. If you agree with me, fine. If you don't, you know, whatever. And that's, that's that. I try to tell a few clients this every now and then. Listen with the intent to understand, not to reply. Because the best relationships are the ones that can have the hardest conversations openly and honestly to move forward. And we've had a few really good ones on the podcast from racism back when, you know, we had the riot, Black Lives Matter. Um, we've had amazing hard conversations and good ones. But I don't feel like hard conversation should be that hard if you really want to understand where someone else's perspective is, because we don't all think the same. I may agree with I agree. you. I may disagree, but I may also have a conversation because I'm open to understanding where, you know what, I didn't think about it that or now I view it differently or now I respect more of your opinion on this because I took the time to have the hard conversation. And I think all great relationships are based on hard conversations in general. Yeah, that's a that's a great way to put it. And, you know, I've, I've thought about this myself. All right. If everybody in our country, let's just not even say the world, just our country, everybody in America believed exactly what I believe in politically. I'm, again, very libertarian. But if everybody believed exactly what I wanted and everything was perfect, politically speaking, the way I think it should be, I don't think that would be beneficial because you don't see other perspectives. So I think it's good that you have different factions and people that believe you know, that are a little bit more socially liberal. Some are a little bit more socially conservative, fiscally liberal, fiscally conservative. I think there's a good mix. The issue that arises, as we've clearly seen over the last five to six years, is when you say, oh, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican, and you're speaking to somebody on the other end of the side of the fence. And just by saying that one thing, they're already painting a picture of everything that you represent, and they're not willing to give you a time of day. That's what the issue is. That's just being judgmental in general, though. I mean, I mean everybody is. Everybody I mean, I mean, is. And I hate that. I absolutely hate that, which is one of the things I didn't like about being in L.A. so much in the last 20 years, just the judgmental bullshit of people. I mean, and until you really walk in somebody else's shoes, you know what's going on with them. You can't really judge. I mean, we all judge. Cause it's easy to judge and accept that, whatever the truth is. But at the end of the day, you got to kind of step oh. back and realize, like, I'm all about oh. we don't make easy decisions. CEOs, it's easy. We all make easy decisions. Making the hard decisions is a true factor of what a CEO is. You kind of got to be careful how you're judging people. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the perfect story because every human being is judgmental. Everybody wants to say they're not. Everybody is. Everybody's going to judge you by the way you look, by what you say, how you dress, everything like that. The first podcast I did three years ago, I have tattoos on my necks. I actually covered my my tattoos because I, I was under the frame of mind. You know what? I don't want anybody 
And uh, after that, that's the first and last time I ever did that, by the way, because after that, I realized I did the one thing that I always said I wasn't going to do, and that's not be me. And if you can't accept me, whatever. So that's one aspect. The best example, and I tell this to everybody, is there was years ago, years and years ago, I used to work out and lift weights at 630 in the morning. Now I do it later at night. I'm constantly switching my schedule to keep everything fresh and clean. But I go out, I leave my home, I go to a 7-Eleven to have some coffee, and I'm dressed uh, ready to work out. I have shorts on. I have, I'm an Italian-American, so I'll call it a guinea pea. I got the guinea pea on. I got my tattoo showing, right? I kid you not. I was standing behind a mother and her daughter, and she takes her daughter and just kind of inches her away. I saw it. She thought she was being a little bit uh, sly and subtle, but she wasn't. I saw it. I said, oh, okay, that's that's good. You're judging me by tattoos and, and everything like that. I was a little bigger at the time. Uh, obviously, age and everything like that, I shrunk a little bit, but okay, no big deal. I'm, I'm going to let it go. I go to the gym, I work out, I go back home, I shower up. Now I'm going to work. Remember, this is the time that I was, I was a stockbroker, so I'm going to my financial services firm. Well, I'm not in a shorts or a guinea tea anymore. Now I'm in a nice three-piece suit. I have a vest, I got the tie. You can still see the remnants of my tattoo i have it's during the summer so i have my sleeves rolled up so you see the tattoos on my arms so you clearly see that i'm tattooed up as soon as i get out of my car i start walking towards the door guy opens the door here you go sir i'm not making that up all of a sudden i'm pouring coffee hey good morning how are you the reception i got was a hundred percent different same guy what changed it was just the clothes that i was wearing right well that's human nature that's unfortunate truth, but that's human nature. No matter what, people are going to judge you by what you look, what you say, and how you behave. Well, that's because that it's stuff. perception. Perception is reality. So if I'm going to perceive a certain stigma of what it, somebody with tattoo, and I have tattoos. I mean, obviously they're not, they're hidden, but I got, I'm trying to count now. I think I have four or five, I have four or five tattoos, but I just feel like, you know, perception is reality where, which is how we deal with that in PR. You want people to see you, view you think a certain way of you. So you're going to fake it till you make it. You're going to bullshit through on social and stuff because you want that perception to be. And I feel like that perception people want them to be is insecurity versus like, I am all about, I don't give a shit. If somebody doesn't like us, they don't like us. They don't want to be on our podcast. Not my fucking problem. Yes, that will not be edited out. We have a no filter <laughs> rule on here, but it's just like, it's just perception's reality. And I should have told me that. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, yeah, you I, that really bad no, one. I'll go. Yeah, I'll go. I'll go. Yeah. <laughs> we, we have, we, I, we, we'll, we'll filter the sniffles and sneezes out, but we don't have, a, I mean, I've, cur- I think I've cursed more now on podcasts than our guests have, but I don't care because I own it. I will own it. And like, oh, my big thing is you don't show up, you show up. You have to know how to show up. Just show up, own your leadership, own your mistakes, own who you are. You can't do much more than that. If somebody on the other end, doesn't like how I look, how, what I said, or how I'm, I, you know what, that's not my problem because I am least confident in owning what I'm saying, who I am, and I know what my value is, and I'm not going to waver, and I'm always going to fight for what my value is, not just because somebody else perceives it should be a different way. And I just feel like that kind of blurs the line of leadership, but it is, it is the whole perception of, I don't think it matters if you walk in the baseball hat with a t-shirt and tattoos on a cut of deal, or whether you walk in with a suit, you're who you are. If I trust you and I respect you and you're solid, it doesn't matter what you're wearing. And that's where I think that whole judgmental bullshit is just, it's it's got to start and stop somewhere. But unless we're willing to understand it, we're never going to make it better. And that's just- It's, 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 a, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. And, you know, I, I could say this, you know, out of- this many people, this is the entire population, right? Everybody's judgmental no matter what. And no matter what you do, there's still going to be narrow-minded, simple-minded people that are going to judge you no matter what. I might win people over by coming in with my cap and showing my tattoos and my guinea pea and everything like that by the confidence that I have, how I, how I exude myself, how I portray myself, how I articulate, which I think I do a pretty decent job. And I've had those conversations with clients and I will continue to do so. But no matter what, you're still going to have the narrow-minded narrow-minded individuals that no matter what, because you have this, or you look like this, or you dress like this, I will not do business with you, right? And it it is what it is. That's just, again, human nature. Thankfully, I think a lot of people look past that veal, but it is human nature to still have those preconceived motions. That being said, 
I still operate like, you know, I don't care. The only time I do care is I always have to, and you talk about leadership, right? And an important thing about leadership is, yes, I also don't care myself at this point in time, have my tattoos out and everything like that. However, I do have to watch how I articulate and how people perceive me to make sure that I'm perceived in the most positive light, because it's also as a leader, not about myself but about the people that work for my organization that need this organization to succeed, to provide for their families. And the first things first is I always have to have my people that work for the company that bears my name in my thoughts on every action that I take, in addition to my clients. I think it's really important because people do judge, but I know I grew up with like a lot of bikers and people are like, oh, those are scary people nicest most warm-hearted yeah. people but they, just because they you know drive motorcycles and they wear you know vests with patches people just have this automatic assumption and i've seen them be the kindest sweetest people and then i've seen people in three-piece suits be the biggest assholes in the world it's so true. you know it's almost it, it's wrong but like you know nobody knows how to change it because it's always going to happen and it's kind of sad that people don't look deeper well i think it's a matter of like i said don't you got to listen to what they say you just can't i can't judge you by looking at you i have to ask you a question i have to hear to drew's point how you articulate who you are what you do how you come off because when you see people face to face i'm a pretty good read on people but if i don't give you the chance to talk to me a chance to articulate what you want to say I can't judge you by what you look like. Cause we all make this assumption. Certain people that are three piece suits, wall street sports guys, super hot guy, but he could be a complete piece of shit when he opens his mouth, how he treats people. Perception is reality. Just because you look a certain way doesn't mean you're going to act a certain way. Cause you can't really help how you look at times. If you don't have tons of money with plastics and what you do, but it doesn't matter long as you walk into a room and you could earn the respect because of how you hold yourself, how you present yourself. And you got to give somebody that opportunity. And like, and I'm not going to get the whole like female women leadership, but my biggest issue is how most women, I'm just going to say it out loud here, Marjorie, how most women complain they can't get ahead. So in a male dominant industry, because they're being put down because they're female. I think it's bullshit. Most women don't get ahead because other women put them down and judge them insecure, vindictive, jealous. If, you know, the guys in the room migrate to somebody better looking who just may just be smarter, but knows how to work their looks. Because once they enter the room, they could command the respect of the room. It's just, it's the whole judgmental thing. I think people hone in on as an excuse to not lead, to not be better, to not be more proactive and be a better human being. I can't blame a client. Well, I'm a female. We didn't get the account because they hired a male, which is kind of bullshit because I work in a male-dominated industry and we usually get what we want. I've never lost a client or a deal because I'm a female. I've lost it if we didn't have the experience, if we didn't have that chemistry. But I would never blame it because it was a guy on the other end of that call or that business table. That's the like judgmental shit that I can't stand in the industry and business at least. Yeah. And it's, uh, it, it's prevalent, but you know, I, I don't know to chalk it up to, I mean, I'm sure there's instances where certain things do happen that inhibit somebody from getting to another level. Yeah. But at, at the same point, I think it goes back to what I was saying about mindset and attitude. You know, I statistically speaking, I tell everybody, you know, growing up with a single mother and being on welfare and knowing how it is to be in a homeless shelter and sleeping in my car in my teens and being in a battered women's shelter when I was seven years old with my mother and hearing all these horror stories. If you actually look at it, regardless of your skin color or your gender, anybody that has that type of background, they're going to grow up under the poverty line. You know, you become a creature of your environment. But for whatever reason, I always had this inner drive and this vision to do something. I think if if I had better guidance and a you know a good father figure around and other things, I probably could have been starting this company ten years ago. But it is what it is. That that kind of makes you and provides you a different experience and a different being able to look at things from a different lens and attributes to your wisdom and allows you to appreciate other things. And it, it has led to me to be where I am today. And again, that's why I'm a big proponent of you know just change your attitude. You know, maybe your attitude sucks. I tell my organization, I give examples, right? The average person will get in a car, tire blows out, ruins their day. They're pissed off. Why are you so angry? It's probably the first time you blow out your tire in maybe five years, 10 years. How many times did you get in your car, 
you drive to work or drive to the supermarket or wherever you did, where your tire did not blow out. The more times you get in that car, the likelihood of your tire blowing out or something else going. Just be happy that a tire blowing out isn't going to do you financial harm. It's just more of a nuisance. You know how I know that? Because I remember a time where if my tire did blow out, I would say, shit, I, what the hell am I going to do? I remember a time where I had to deposit a dollar into the bank account because I was overdrawn by 17 cents. I remember all that. Luckily, now that's not really an issue. But again, it, it contributes to your wisdom. It contributes to your experience. It allows you to view things and have a different perception and also kind of leads you to your, your leadership. And it helps you in uh, business too. Helps you run an organization and understand and have some empathy. But at the same point, allow you a, a backbone not to be taken advantage of and say, all right, this is what we have to do. This is what has to be done. Cut the shit. Let's go. Yeah. yeah, but it is kind of like what you say, I find so fascinating because, you know, they, how they talk about wealth. First generation makes it, you know, the second generation keeps it and the third generation loses it because that third generation didn't have to work as hard as that first generation. Because the first generation, when you actually have to make the money, you appreciate the money. You've had to work hard. But if you're just like a trust fund baby and, you know, L.A. full of them, they don't appreciate like how hard it was for their grandparents or their parents to make that money. And I think if you work hard and you appreciate it, it's more valuable to you. It's more valuable to your life. And it's not just about the money. It's about the work you put in to actually earn that. So it's it's a, definitely a different mindset between those generations. Yeah, you need fulfillment. You need a reason to get up every day. You know, I think about it and all right, if I walked away from my organization and I took all my money... I wouldn't have to work anymore, but what would I do? What would get me out of bed? I, I love what I do. It's a pain in the ass, I can tell you, especially in the last few days, you know, but it's the bed I made in and I wouldn't have it any other way. And I used to be, you know, coming from my background, I used to be very envious of people that had it easy, that grew up with rich parents or even middle-class parents. Oh, it was easy for you because you grew up and they paid for your college and everything. I don't have that anymore because it's all about opportunity. Obviously, people that grew up in a, middle-class family, the uh, the nuclear family, so to speak, have an advantage because at least they have, they start with that opportunity, right? But they also don't have to take advantage of it because there's a lot of people dying from drug overdoses. There's a lot of people that don't amount to anything and they started with the same advantage. Another great example is I had a client years and years ago and this guy was, you know, uh, worth nine figures and he had several kids. A few of them were went on to run successful businesses but he was the most miserable guy because two of his sons killed themselves. Another one was working at a fast food restaurant. And again, I'm always assessing people's lives. And just because it's, you know, a uh, part of my, you know, evolvement as a human being as well. So how does somebody grow up with a father that's worth, you know, eight, nine figures and they drop the ball? Or how does somebody just start getting into drugs or stealing or whatever it is? So they were given that opportunity. They didn't take advantage of it. You know, again, if I had that opportunity when I was a teenager, who knows? I didn't. I don't have the wisdom that I do now. I didn't go through those trials and turbulence. And who knows how it would have wound up? So I'm no longer envious about it because there's no reason to. You know, you just look at where you are today. Luckily for myself, I, if anything, I think it's an advantage because now I'm in a position where, if you look at my office and I turned around, like you don't see Wall Street stuff. You know, I'm like a little kid. I'm near 37 living everything that I wanted to do when I was five. I got, you know, Nintendo, I got Batman, I got Ghostbusters, I got life-size cutout of Bob Ross in the corner over there. That's just my personality. So again, I wake up every day. Every day, you know, some days are harder than the other, but yeah, you can't, it's, it's better to be positive than negative, you know? Yeah, I know we've kind of gone so many directions with this podcast. We did. This was like the most ADD podcast <laughs> I've done in a while, but I like it. That, 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 that's I love very, it. Uh, it. I makes love it, it. Uh, you know. It it's interesting. It, uh, it's unfiltered. Makes it unique and interesting. Yeah, it's unfiltered. Yeah, but it is. I mean, we, I mean, most of our best podcasts completely go off the rails like this and everything. But I mean, and before we tie up here, I, I want to chat with you because I, I like honestly, you've done such a tremendous job. You've weathered through a lot of the ups and downturns of the stock market and what's going on in the economy. But I want to just touch base because two things I really loved about when I was looking into the website, you're working on a project, I believe, that is building a soccer stadium in Queens. Your investment group is about associate partnerships with New York City. Like you are taking it beyond just, you know, you're investing like, you know, the psychedelics, Web3, space defense, you have all your investments. But 
I want to talk a little bit for five minutes before you wrap about what you're doing to really give back into these two projects you um listed. What are you doing to give back to New York? I mean, are you guys in helping bring in the investments to fund to build the soccer team or the soccer stadium in Queens and then the partnerships with New York City? Yeah, the, the partnership with the New York City Football Club is just an associate partnership. We sponsor them, but that money doesn't go towards like building the soccer stadium or anything like that. Uh, answering your question of what we're doing to give back, one of our funds, we're allocating 10% of our profits to a military-based charity. Literally just had the conversation today that we're going to start sponsoring some kids with their college education here in Long Island. And that's the thing. We do have a national presence, but I do want to focus, especially in our backyard. We have an office in Jersey. We have a Long Island office. We might have Long Island office number two by the end of the year. We're already in the process of establishing a presence in Florida. So I'm always on the pulse of giving back. As we continue to scale the firm, we could start getting more creative with what we're doing. But I think once you have a certain level of success, you have to have due diligence to give back. The thing is, and I've learned, is you can't leave a horse to water, but you can't force it to drink. So what does that mean? That means that I will only be helping out and my firm will only be helping out. And my, my whole thing is to find underprivileged kids and kind of help them and mold them and say, hey, listen, you need an education. Here you go. But the whole key to that is you have to want it and you have to work for it. I'm not all about helping people out that just want a handout and they don't show it. No, if you're willing to put in the work, if you're motivated, if you're showing that you deserve something, but you don't have any help elsewhere, we want to be a firm that actually establishes a nonprofit eventually, not right now, not right now is not the time, but that it can actually do that. So yes, where we are in the process of giving back, we have a few things in the works. And as we continue to scale the organization, it'll get larger and larger and larger. That's amazing. So where can anybody reach out to you if anybody needs to talk to you for whether it's hiring you guys as a wealth management investment, just to talk with you about your giving back to the city, where's a good place to reach you at? Same place for everybody. The website, tsginvest.com. We're adding a few little things in there. You go in there. We have uh, full disclosure. If anybody's interested in one of our VC funds, you do have to be accredited in order to do business with us, which means that you have to either make $200,000 a year, or you have to have a net worth of at least a million dollars, excluding your primary residence. However, to bring you on as a client with our financial planning arm or insurance services arm, you do not have to be accredited. So we're, we're in the process of continuing to build that out. So best thing, again, go to our website, you feel something out. We definitely have somebody getting back to you. And then we start the relationship. Awesome. That's amazing. So it was so good to having you on. I'm going to let you run. I hope you do feel better because I've been sniffling. Yeah, I know. Crazy yeah. podcast. But it was so good having you on. So Sarah Mill with Marjorie DeHay with The Access Effect. We're here with Drew Preventa with the tsginvest.com if anybody needs to reach Drew. He'll be feeling better by the time he gets your emails. Yes, I will. So good to have you on. Thanks so much for your time today. Same here, guys. Take it easy. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Axis Effect podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode or download past episodes, be sure to subscribe to the Axis Effect podcast on your favorite podcast provider. To learn more about the podcast or our guests, please visit theaxiseffect.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.